Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive religious community, deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Well, let's get started. Good morning and welcome to all of you as you come in. Um, I'm always reminded of when we worship in the real sanctuary, there's this moment of uh, we start the service and the pews are half full and then over the next 10 minutes they fill up and here that time is just condensed into like the next 30 seconds where uh, the whole Zoom room fills up with you coming in from around the Twin Cities, around the state, around the country. And so we welcome you here this morning, wherever you're joining us from. My name is Justin Schroeder. I'm one of the ministers at First Universalist Church, and it is really good to be with you this morning. These are strange and challenging and painful times we're living in, times that are both awful and awe-filled. Awful because there is so much suffering and hardship that has been revealed and exacerbated by the global pandemic. Awful because from day one, our government has valued profit over people, and the death toll is now over 130,000 from COVID losses, and a disproportionate number of those dead are people of color. It's an awful time because we are physically distancing from one another, and we long for human contact. It's also a awful time because the reality of police brutality against people of color has never been clearer to white folks. And it's an awe-filled time because we are in a, a moment when old systems and ways of thinking are on the edge of collapsing, are beginning to change. We have seen some change in the possibility of so much more change just in the last six weeks than we've seen in a long time. We are seeing so clearly that black lives do matter and millions of people are pushing to end the violence and murderous practices that harm and destroy black lives. It is an awe-filled time, a liminal time, and we are in the in-between of what was and what will be. And so as we gather this morning, I imagine, I know we bring all of that into this space. We bring our heartache and our heartbreak and our hope into this space and it is good to be together to remember who we are and who we want to be. There are a number of other ways you can connect with us every week at seven on Wednesday. At Wednesday at seven, we worship for about 30 minutes. You're welcome to join us for that. Sundays at 10 o'clock, of course, is our regular worship service. More information and ways to connect are online on our website. And if you haven't already, I hope you will sign up on our website for our weekly e-newsletter. It's called the, the Liberal. It's a way to just stay in touch and understand and see the opportunities that are coming up uh, and ways to be connected in this time of physical distancing. So this past week, First Universalist held a virtual summer camp, 36 campers. There were six uh, youth and young adult counselors and three church staff. That's the slide you're seeing right now. That is the three adults and the six youth and young adult counselors. And as part of this virtual camp, they had stories and activities exploring the theme, the call of love. Zoe Mulvihill and Caitlin Berry, two of the youth counselors, shared a message with the campers and they will share it with us now. And after their message, Seth Matz, our young children's program coordinator, will sing Sanctuary. So the story today comes from the Bible, 
which is the holy text in the Christian faith tradition. And in the Bible, there are two sections. The first section is known as the Hebrew scriptures, and it has some stories that you may be familiar with, maybe not, like Genesis, Adam and Eve, Moses, and the parting of the Red Sea. And then in the second section of the book, which is known as the Christian scriptures, those are all, that section is all about Jesus and Jesus' teachings. And so when Christianity first started, there were missionaries and they would travel all over and they would spread this, the news about Jesus and his messaging. People would stop and listen and some would really identify with that and join the religion. And so one of these people, his name was Paul, and he would travel all over and because of that, he couldn't stay in one place for a very long time. And so when he left a community and people had questions about Jesus' messages, Paul would write them letters answering their questions. And a lot of these letters ended up in that section, second section of the book in the Christian scriptures. And they were really important because they were the first forms of writing that talked about what it meant to be Christian. They were the first forms of writing that people could really identify with and think, oh yeah, that's, that's why I'm doing this. That's, that's what I identify with as my religion. The letter that I'm going to be talking to you about today is about love, which fits right into our values as Unitarian Universalists. So here's how the story goes. There was this church in southern Greece, and they noticed that God gave us many gifts. They said, God gave us the gift of spiritual understanding, and that was the most important gift because it really fulfilled people and gave people a sense of purpose. Some people said, some people noticed that God gave us the gift to speak many languages and speak with people across all regions, and they said that that was really important for for markets, for money-making, just in general, that was a really useful gift. Other people said, no, the most important gift is giving to the needy, because as humans, we can give our money, we can give our time to those who need it, and that's what's most important. And so Paul wrote, they, they were arguing and going back and forth, and they couldn't come up with a solution. And so they wrote to Paul, and Paul wrote them back, reminding them that love is the most important gift that God gave us. And he said, without love, all of the other gifts become meaningless. For example, if you're giving your time and your money to someone who needs it, but you're not doing it out of love, you're just doing it to make yourself look good. And so he said that in order for us to use the gifts as God intended, there needs to be love. He also noted that all those gifts, if you speak many languages or you have really deep spiritual understanding, when you die, those gifts go away. But love, love is eternal. And his messaging was, is that in order for us to use the gifts as God intended, intended there needs to be love. So if love is so important, what is it? Well, Paul defines it as being patient and kind. He writes that love is not jealous. 
does not brag and it is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not selfish and does not become angry easily. Love does not remember wrong, does against it. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices over the truth. Love patiently accepts all things. It always trusts, always hopes, and always continues strong. Thanks for listening. Thanks for that story, Zoe. I really like it. And I think that it also has a lot of really important messages. One message that I take away is in showing them every single day through both your words and your actions that you care about them and you support them and you love them and you're there for them. It's almost like playing an instrument. Say you play the guitar or the trumpet. You have to keep strumming the guitar in order for there to be song. And if you want the song to sound good, you have to put some effort into it. And it goes the same way for love. You have to keep showing someone that you love them and keep putting effort into that love in order for it to feel genuine and real. And it's also really appreciated by the person. And when you feel love, you know when someone is putting effort into it and that you can feel it every single day. To be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Just the kids with me this time. Love prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. together again. Love prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving. I'll be a So it's funny what happens in middle age. You see, I've never been much of a runner. That is until this last year. And in the last year, running has become a central part of my life, a central piece of my set of practices that help anchor and ground me in the midst of everything that is happening. I probably run about five times a week. And what I love, what I just, what brings me so much pleasure is feeling my body, my arms, my legs, my, my feet, my chest, feeling my body moving over the body of the earth. And so I love to run by creeks. I love to run by, by lakes. I love to run 
over the wet, lush soil and places where there's just sounds and sensory experiences of the body of the earth. Sometimes when I run, I think about how human beings are stardust and the earth is some of that stardust that came into being and gave life to all of us. So in other words, when I run, I feel the stardust that is this particular manifestation in a kind of relationship with the stardust of the earth and of all creation, and it brings me joy. And sometimes running, feeling my body in relationship with the body of the earth is also painful. One of the first runs I did when I was back in Minneapolis after my sabbatical, I ran the length of Lake Street from the Marshall Street Bridge all the way to Bede Makaska and back and could just feel and see and sense the pain and grief and exhaustion and rage that had been all along that corridor as thousands and thousands of people came into the streets to protest the execution, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others. The soil holds stories. And I love the soil. I love the dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt and weeding and planting and growing and harvesting. Dirt, soil, humus, it, it is good stuff. And when I'm gardening, I remember that the word humus has roots that connect it to the word humility, which really just means low or lowly or of the ground or of the earth, which is not such a bad thing at all. And I'm reminded when my hands are in the soil of all those creation stories that speak of human beings, we heard a little bit of this in our story from Zoe, that speak of human beings fashioned from the earth, from dust, from clay, from mud, from humus, and then the breath of life is breathed into them and it animates these earthly creations. In the story in Genesis, the Hebrew word for earth is Adamah, and the first creation, the first person created is Adam or Adam. There's this play between earth and earth person. He is the first creation from the earth, essentially an earth, an earthy creation. It couldn't be clearer in this story and the other stories. We come from dust. From earth we live and we returned to dust, to earth. While we are here, as we heard in the story from Zoe and Caitlin, love is the soil, the practice that can really help us grow. But that overall cycle is clear. Humus to humans to humus again. And that reality invites humility. And in this faith community, we believe that one of our core spiritual practice is to cultivate humility. We begin each of our services by saying, with humility, courage, and compassion, we act to create a more just world. And we are now living in a time when the practice of humility, of saying, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or let's find out together, that practice is so important. And that can be an act of love, this practice of humility. We are living in a time when we deeply need one another, when we need all voices and all experiences at the table. 
And humility invites us to listen and to reflect and to decenter our own certainty. Humility often means digging in the soil, in history, in the stories of our community and the stories of our own lives to discover the deeper layers of truth and wisdom that are there so that we don't just rest in what we think we know. Robin D'Angelo, author of the book White Fragility, a book I know many of you are reading or have read and are rereading or will read soon, um, she reflects, she has a really powerful reflection on how important it is for white-bodied people to practice humility, especially when it comes to issues around race. And she says this, I've never met a white person who didn't have an opinion on racism. That doesn't make it an informed opinion, she says. It's so complicated and nuanced and layered. So be willing to consider that maybe your opinions are not as informed as you think they are. She goes on to say, most white people live segregated lives. Most of us don't even really know black people. Most of us go cradle to grave with few, if any, authentic, sustained, cross-racial relationships and no real sense of loss about that. And yet we have these opinions that we feel are equal to people who have, you know, lived and struggled and studied and worked and thought about these issues for decades. And so it's a little bit like saying, well, I've been to the Epcot Center, therefore I'm qualified to wade in on a debate with Neil deGrasse Tyson on whether Pluto is a planet. White supremacy culture teaches white folks especially that they have the answers and know better than almost anyone else about what everyone else needs. Humility can help dismantle this hurtful and harmful practice and the assumptions that go with it. So let me share another story with you. I read earlier this week in the Star Tribune about the rush to find a vaccine for COVID-19. And for some reason, reading the story made me think about Edward Jenner, uh, an Englishman who is often called the father of immunology and vaccination. He's credited with discovering and developing really the vaccine for smallpox over 200 years ago. And I remember being taught this in school. It was, it was the truth. It was sort of the immutable fact. Edward Jen Jenner did this. He discovered the vaccine. And that's kind of the story. You know, just that was it. That was, that was the truth. But I recently finished reading this book by Ibram X. Kende, his book called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And in that book, I learned that nearly 100 years before Edward Jenner developed his idea of immunology and vaccines, it was enslaved West Africans in the New England colonies that shared with their white owners, including Puritan Cotton Mather, how they had learned to practice inoculation against smallpox. They had done this by taking a small amount of pus from a smallpox victim and then with a little thorn, scraping some of that into the skin of a healthy person. This practice was hundreds of years old and it resulted in building up healthy recipients' immunity to this disease. This innovative practice prevented untold numbers of deaths in West Africa 
and on disease-ridden slave ships to ports throughout the Atlantic. According to Ibram X. Kende, racist European scientists and racist early colonists refused to recognize that African physicians and African wisdom could have made such advances. It would take many more deaths and decades before the so-called father of immunology, Edward Jenner, would validate this idea of inoculation. So I sit with that story and I think, oh, lordy, lordy, there is so much to this story. And it is a story that is essentially repeated again and again today. There are different characters and different configurations, but that, is same, but that same essential story is very much alive today. And it's, it's a supremacist story. It's based, as all supremacist thinking is, on artificial hierarchies. Artificial hierarchies around race. White people are superior to all other races. Artificial hierarchies around gender. Men are supposedly inferior to all other genders. Artificial hierarchies around class. Rich people are supposedly better than poor people. Hierarchies around ability. Temporarily able-bodied people are better than people with disabilities. It goes on and on. There is so much knowledge, wisdom, truth, and insight all around us available from our fellow siblings on this planet. But white supremacy and supremacy thinking ignores or denies or destroys or silences that wisdom at great costs. Or it co-opts that wisdom or truth and claims it as its own without giving any credit. Humility counsels us to look again at what we think we know, and then look again at what we think we know. I have one more story to share, and it relates to a conversation that our wider community, the Minneapolis community and country is really right in the middle of right now. And although there are a variety of viewpoints within the community about the way forward, I think it is safe to say that there is common agreement that policing as it currently exists, as it has existed, that cannot continue. While many of us know the painful history of policing quite intimately, many of us do not. So a few years ago, a group of Minneapolis citizens, activists, organizers, researchers, and artists, they came together to review the history of the Minneapolis Police Department. The department was coming up on 150 years of existence, and they wanted to do a thorough kind of review and evaluation of that 150 years. They put their extensive work online at mpd150.com. And as a part of this report, they detailed the origins of the police in this country. Here's what they shared, and I'm quoting from their report. Though the 13 colonies imported a system of elected sheriffs and constables who were empowered to enforce some laws, formalized American policing really began with slave patrols. Made up of local militias and slave owners who patrolled the countryside, stopping black people and forcing escaped slaves back into bondage, slave patrols enforced white supremacy from some of the earliest days of the European occupation of the Americas. These patrols and their northern equivalents, town watches, were empowered to enforce curfews against Black and Native folks, search and confiscate property, and brutalize them with or without cause. 
These groups were gradually granted additional powers and jurisdiction, eventually evolving directly into the modern day police that we have now in those modern day police departments. One example of this they, they share in this report can be seen in Charleston, South Carolina, where a town watch in 1671 created for the explicit purpose, there was a town watch that was created in 1671 for the explicit purpose of keeping native and black people in line. And that town watch eventually turned into the city's first police department. Reverend Ruth, Reverend Ruth used to talk about being right-sized. She often said our work as human beings is to be right-sized. What she meant is that our spiritual work is not to take up too much space, to recognize other voices and perspectives and experiences and wisdom, and to make room for those. So maybe in some situations, right-sized means stepping back. At the same time, being the right size doesn't mean that you shrink and disappear completely from the scene, from the community. You don't just move into the background withholding the wisdom or truth that you hold. The idea is that some of us probably need to step forward to be right sized and some of us need to step back. I don't think she ever called it a practice of humility. But Reverend Ruth was talking about a practice of humility, of being the right size in the moment, not puffed up with ego and certainty and imagining yourself at the top of some artificial hierarchy and not remaining invisible or silent when you had something of import to say. Being right sized is a kind of love, a humble love a love that places oneself in right relationship with others and with creation itself. So as we struggle, as we struggle to make sense of this moment we're in, where old calcified systems and structures are loose and malleable and crumbling, and as we struggle with how to move forward, perhaps for many of us, it's time to be like dirt, to be like humus, to be humble, to practice humility, to hold lightly all that we think we know, or if we've been holding back, to bring forward what we know. We can't go back to a violent and murderous normal. Instead, we are living in this new normal where the level of discomfort is only going to increase as we move toward a new world. And so perhaps the way forward is to practice humility, to practice wondering and curiosity, to practice stripping away so much of what we think we know and getting wildly curious about all of the wisdom right in front of us. We are dust and to dust we shall return. Knowing this, let us listen deeply to the voices around us and let us act with humility, courage, and compassion as we strive to create a more just world. May it be so, and amen, and blessed be.
Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. With Thanksgiving.